Welcome back to Delta Flyer. I'm Stuart Hollis. And I'm Thad Haight. This week, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 26, Basics, Part 1. Yeah, it's a pretty simple episode. But it's not so simple that we didn't want to bring someone else to help us talk about it, so welcome our guest, John. Hey, everybody. What a treat to be here. Listeners may know John from the Trek Profiles podcast and other appearances on the Tricorder Transmissions Network. That is correct. And boy, what a thrill it is to be talking about this. I am so jazzed to be talking to you guys because uh, I don't don't know if you, you know this or not, but I actually missed most of Voyager in first run. So I've been slowly doing a, I, I don't even want to call it a rewatch, but just a watch, really. And so I'm seeing these episodes for the first time uh, now. And so it's a real thrill for, for me to be here to talk to you about it. So I'm jazzed. Or chuffed, as they would say in the UK. That's for you, Alex Perry. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you on the show, because uh, it's always nice when we can get someone else in to talk about it. And this, uh, when you mentioned this as one of the episodes you might want to talk about, like, sure, why not? Absolutely. It's uh it's a, you know, it's a season ender which are always high drama and usually have some interesting uh cliffhangers to sink your teeth into and uh some interesting stories that have to be resolved. So I thought, yeah, this would be a good one to jump in on. So, I'm Jazz. Yeah, this is our first proper season ender for Voyager since first season of course ended on um learning curve. That's it. Yeah, about all the cadets and everything, basically. Right. I mean, they weren't, but yeah. The Lower Decks remake. Yes. Sort of. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was supposed to end on the 37s, but they ran out of time or some sort of production reason. Oh, man. I got in so much trouble talking about the 37s on Twitter. People got mad. They got quite cross with me. You were not a fan of the 37s? No, I I didn't mind the episode actually at all, but oh. <laughs> the, the the one part of it that I just could not wrap my brain around is she goes into the uh, cargo bay or wherever it was at the end, you know, the meeting room, mm-hmm. and not a single person decided that they'd want to stay with the 37s. I mean, we're just told that it's the most marvelous place and they've built all these wonderful cities and it's just so fantastic. And it's like, they're just also, this place is amazing. And they're like, oh my God, what if the crew wants to stay here? And Janeway rightfully says, let's give some of these people the option. And there's not one person who says, I'd rather stay here with these people. Not one person? Really? Are you sure? No, I'm not buying that. So... Kind of got shot down on that. And people were like, no, they're all in Starfleet now. And they're all about exploration. I was like, you know, some people may not have nothing to go home to back in the Alpha Quadrant. Yeah. And some people may not, you know, they just might be like, I just wanted to do five years to pay for dental school or whatever, you know, they do <laughs> in the 24th century. And they just might be like, this looks like a totally suitable place for me to hang. You know, I didn't sign up for 70 years of, of you know, rationing and uh, – misery so you know i mean i'm not saying it would have been half the crew but there should have been some non-zero number and i'm especially thinking about the maquis here who probably may have said this looks like a decent place to hang so that that whole thing just kind of turned the episode for me and when i said this on twitter a bunch of people were like no that is you are thinking about the episode incorrectly all right (laughs) i'm incorrect got it (laughs) i just think tom paris landed the ship too close to that mountain (laughs) maybe yeah i think i kind of the same mountain that the kazon landed close to in this episode it looks very similar, doesn't it? It looks very similar. I suspect they're reusing some effects on us. <laughs> so, so, speaking of this episode. Yes. Uh, John said that he missed it the first time around, and when it, origi- and it originally aired on the 20th of May, 1996, and surely he was off doing better things. 
who originally wrote it, Thad? It was written written by Michael Piller. Uh, Basics was uh, Michael Piller's swan song because he was leaving the role of executive producer of the show after season two. Uh, it was directed by Vinrick Kolbe. We know those guys. Yes, we do. So speaking of Michael Piller, uh, after he did Star Trek Insurrection, he went on to develop, and we're crossing the streams a bit here, a television show called The Dead Zone. Yes. Since 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 uh since John doesn't listen to this show, means he definitely does not listen to Stargate Weekly. Uh, Were they on the Dead Zone? Is a recurring segment of mine on Stargate Weekly, where I check to see if any of the new characters this week were on the Dead Zone. I don't have a particular affinity for the show. I think I've only ever seen an episode and a half of it, but for some reason, it's important to me. <laughs> and that's all right. Almost as important as telling you that our synopsis from TV Guide says that <laughs> a signal from Seska telling Chakotay their child has been abducted by Kulla sends Voyager in pursuit straight into a Kazon ambush. On Memory Alpha, uh, the synopsis is, on a mission to rescue Chakotay's son from Maj Kala, Voyager is captured by the Kazon Nistrum in a sneak attack. Yeah. Not, you know, uh, no, Memory Alpha feels no need to withhold spoilers. Yeah, they're, they're not, uh, they're, they're certainly not uh, withholding anything there. They're giving it all away. Yeah. So our episode opens on Suter. Yeah. And this is the third, at least the third, because it's the third one I can think of, episode this season in which we have a plot involving orchids. I saw your tweet about that today. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying season two is the season of the orchid. Yeah, I think you're right. But you know what? The thing that jumped out about me, to me, the thing that jumped out to me is uh, just how wonderful and absolutely delightful Brad Dourif is in every single thing that he does. And if you're looking for a guy to play a tortured soul, he is so your man, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I can only assume, definitely not because I watched them back to back, because it's a cliffhanger and I needed to, that he <laughs> only gets better in the second half. Yeah, Brad Dorff played a fairly similar character on an episode of Babylon 5, and did it did that very well as well. Oh my gosh, Passing Through Gethsemane, probably one of the best standalone episodes of Babylon 5 and probably the one that I recommend to people to say, you know, g give this one episode a shot. You don't need to know much about the show. And if, if you like that episode and you think it was pretty special, you, you'll, you'll probably like the series. So give it a shot. I'll have to look it up because I've never seen the series. Now, I've heard a rumor and I don't know how substantiated that is, but I've heard a rumor that Brad Dorif was only in three episodes of Voyager because he was too expensive. Sometimes that's, it wouldn't surprise me. You know, I mean, when you're putting a TV show together, you got to spread the budget, you know, oh, just yeah. like butter on toast, you know, and you can put it into effects, you can put it into talent, you can put it into locations, you know, you can put it into all those different things. And that's why, like, you know, we were talking about the 37s earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and the, one of the things about the episode is they keep telling you how wonderful and amazing the cities are <laughs> that you never see yep. because they ran out of money because they mm -hmm. landed the ship. <laughs> yeah. And of course, nowadays, nowadays, even on the same budget, they probably could have done so at least as like a CG mat in the background. Yeah. Because I have to imagine that a CG mat is easier to make than an actual painted one. But... Well, well, you Probably. know, the price of these special effects only ever goes down. I mean, and, and some of it's just amazing what they're able to make today. Oh, yeah. Look at Discovery. The production quality on that is insane. I mean, also the cost is insane. But you, you, you think <laughs> about 
or uh, actually, I don't know how much Doctor Who costs anymore. But its production value is pretty good, although actually they're pretty low on CG. So as we record this, gentlemen, uh, there's a new episode of Discovery, and no spoilers, but uh, did you happen to see the episode? I did. And the only thing I want to say about it, and again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I I just really did note how much like uh, sets and location type stuff, they just had a lot of locations and just a lot of things happening in the episode, like different places and so you you could see right there, I mean, just the money in building sets and in all the things that they had to put up there to, to make stuff happen in that episode. It was just a lot, you know, and so that, that's what they spent the money on, you know. And I think in this episode, they spent the money on Brad Dourif, and I thought it was great, um, you know, and he was fantastic, and uh, I was glad to have him. Uh, he just has that that sense that there really is a, a powerful undercurrent of emotions in the guy that he's trying to control, you mm-hmm. know, which is what the whole episode's about, uh, in a, or the the suitor story, I should say, is, is all about. And I just thought it was fantastic. I, I, I literally will watch him do anything in any show. He's so good. Yeah. Yeah, no, he does a standout performance. So speaking of that performance, he is, he and Tuvok are in his quarters and they are discussing an orchid that he had managed to make a hybrid that seemed impossible. Yeah, I don't know what's involved with floral hybridization, so good job, Suter, I guess. Yeah, it's beyond my knowledge. Then Suter tells Tuvok that he wants to name the new orchid after him, Tuvok, which I think Tuvok was touched by. He's hard to read. I think he was, in his own Vulcan way. Especially when you remember that orchids are a particular interest of Tuvok's. Yes. And he tells him this is an honor you should reserve for yourself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Suter wants to honor Tuvok because of how Tuvok has helped him through his mind meld and through the counseling that he's provided. Yes. So I don't... Um remember the episode titles i'm not really good with those especially on voyager because like i said it's my first time going through I'll, I'll probably have to watch the whole series like three or four times before i get the episode titles down but wh- whichever episode it was where they introduced Suter and they decide to quarantine him to quarters at the time i said this is a mistake this this is not the correct decision uh if if they want to separate him from the crew which is a a correct decision Mm -hmm. he should be banished you know the the next m-class planet they come across that's halfway decent whether it's populated or not drop him off you know but there is no reason to be carrying this dude all the way back because to me it sort of flies in the face of the of the whole premise of the show which is that you know we have no friends we have limited resources we're off by ourselves in this uh it's the delta quadrant right Mm -hmm. and uh and, and you know, we, we, we really need to be careful. And, you know, Harry can't eat proper food for nine months because he wants to save up rations for a clarinet. <laughs> okay, great. If, if that's the world that we're in, we're going to carry this guy and he's just going to sit around in his quarters while everybody else is, you know, suffering. I, the whole thing just – I said, no, he should be banished. He should not be in his quarters. So it really was great that they brought him back in because I think it really would have irritated the royal heck out of me if they hadn't have done anything with him. And, you know, you get through seven seasons of the show and you're like, hey, is Suter still hanging out at the bottom of like, you know, deck 25 or something at the end of this? So I'm glad that they, you know, followed the sort of uh, Chekhov's gun idea and they set this thing up and then they actually used it. So I was very thrilled to see him in the episode. So I, I was really excited just right when it began to, to see him again. 
that episode was meld, by the way. And he, honestly, John, you kind of sound like Tuvok in that episode where he was with the arguments that Tuvok was giving for putting him to death. Well, I think there's quite a difference between terminating <laughs> somebody and, and banishing them, right? I mean, I, I think that I think that banishment was more of a form of mercy. Uh, certainly, I, I don't advocate that Suter should have been killed in that episode. We're, we're off track here, guys. I'm sorry if I'm distracting That's you all with, right. my, uh, with, with my because I'm so excited to talk about Voyager. So I'm kind of all over the place, and I apologize to your to your listeners for that. But eh, they're used um, to get over it. Okay, <laughs> but that to me was. Uh, a decision. It was. It, it, it was one of these things. I think. Okay, let me start again. Jim Morehouse, who I'm sure you all know who mm-hmm. he is, did a Trek Ranks episode where he said the things you can't get over, and, and that was the most one of his episodes. And one of the things I said was the failure of Voyager to take its own premise seriously. Yeah. And this this is one of these examples, right? Just like the unlimited torpedoes, the unlimited <laughs> amount of shuttlecraft, the the massive amounts of incredible damage that's magically repaired instantly without spare parts or space dock. And you know, we're going to give this guy a place to live and just feed him and he's not going to have to do anything. Now, I think it's wonderful how they turned that around in this episode. And he's actually sitting in his quarters thinking, you know, this is weighing on me. How can I contribute and what can I do? And I, I do admit that that sort of turned it a little for me, but but that's because it was him. He decided to do that. He just could have said, I'm going to sit here and read Holland novels all day or, you know, whatever it is they do. And, you know, look at uh, uh, women wearing Greek togas playing the liar like Riker does in his quarters in TNG, you know, or whatever it is they do. <laughs> But he didn't. He's like, I'm going to be thinking about the how I can do gene splicing and how I can contribute to the ship and how I can help, even though they won't let me out of this room. And I, I thought that was quite touching and, and quite a positive message that even for this guy who's in a really bad situation, he's going to think, what can I do to help? Uh, which ties into something from Sitting on the Edge of Forever from TOS, right? When Kirk says... There's a writer from that planet over there, from from that star over there, and he someday he's going to write a story, and he's going to say, "I will help." Are the three most special words ever? Even even more even better even more better than "I love you." Uh, and I paraphrase paraphrase that horribly, but you get the idea. So I thought it was great. Yeah. No, I would. Yeah, that's. I think it did work out well. Uh, my only. And I don't want to continue this conversation on forever, but my only caveat is, well, if they need to contain him, they can't have him out with the rest of the crew because of what he's done. Can they really put him on a planet with other people? I, I wasn't suggesting an inhabited planet. Fair enough. You know where they could have left him? On the Resolutions planet. Yeah, exactly. You know, best of their knowledge, it's not inhabited at all. And oh, look, a convenient cabin already ready for him. Yeah, but Janeway gave that cabin to the some kind of primate. Oh, that's the that's the <laughs> that's the shipper episode. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Janeway yeah. and Chakotay. Oh God, yeah, the the romance that came out of nowhere all of a sudden, just like that. Yeah, yeah. No, we 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 we, we the royal we do not approve. <laughs> Continue on. <laughs> so, the last thing that happens in the quarters because we already discussed that Suter wants to make a contribution to the crew and and help out with the uh, airponics vegetable situation which this is now our second solid clue the that thad and i have been right from the get-go that there's <laughs> no way the aeroponics bay is feeding the crew yeah. uh and the last thing that we see in his quarters is that he and tubak get down to 
sort of pray, meditate, whatever. This is going to be a weirdly recurring theme throughout this episode, is people praying and meditating and like mentally preparing themselves for things. It's weird. It comes up three times. I can think of two. Suter and the Kazon. What's the third? Chakotay. Oh, yeah, Chakotay. Right. Akuchimoya. He's far from the land of his ancestors. From from the bones of his ancestors. That's what it is, yeah. Well, he's far from their lands as well. He's far from all kinds of things. But he's not far from the bridge where we go to next, because they've detected an unmanned buoy. Just putting out a signal. You know, like they do. Yeah. Apparently it's like a interstellar answering machine. And Seska has left a message for Chakotay. Yes, and my notes here in the... It just simply say, help me, Obi-Wan Chakotay. You're my only hope. Actually, I was thinking of another Star Wars meme. Admiral Akbar. it's a trap. Yes. Yeah, I mean, what? So, like... She's about to get thrown off the ship, and there's people yelling and shouting and banging around and everything. She takes time to like record this message and beam it out to this buoy that she happens to know is along Voyager's path. Yeah, there is that. Come on. Known and admitted liar Seska sends us a message, <laughs> which suddenly we will believe from known and admitted liar Seska. They do talk about how they may, it may not be it may in fact be a lie. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I'll, I'll have I'll have more to say about this later. Continue on. And Janeway does basically par- paraphrase you, because after they get the message, we're in Janeway's ready room with Chakotay. And Janeway does basically paraphrase you to be like, do I believe that Seska, a known liar, would lie? Yes. I also know that she would know that if you go after the baby, we're all going to go after the baby with you. Yeah. And it seems like she's... I don't know if Jamie's like completely made up her mind on this one, but it, it sure seems like that if, if Chakotay hadn't come to the decision himself, that Jamie maybe would have pressured him into it a little bit. So if you want to analyze the ethics of this, here's a useful thought experiment. Suppose that Seska had affixed her obsession not on Chakotay, but on some ridiculous newbie ensign. Let's say the male equivalent of Cadet Tilly on the Voyager. Do we think that Janeway would have been willing to um, put the whole ship at risk in that situation? I'm not saying yes or I'm not saying no, but I'm saying think through that for a second. If it was like Hogan's baby. Oh, man. Yes. So there you go. And just just think about, just contemplate that and see if you come to the same conclusion. I, I, I don't know how other people would respond to that. I know what I think, but I think it's an interesting thought experiment. Just leaving it out there. I would like to think she would, but she probably wouldn't. Well, you got to figure on a 70-something year journey, there's going to be all kinds of ethical dilemmas. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of this kind of stuff happening. So, you know, you're setting pr- – the, the thing that you have to treat seriously – and again, this is one of the things I think Voyager failed to do is take its own premise seriously – if you're Janeway, you have to realize that everything you do, especially this early on in the journey, sets a precedent. Right. And that's a that's a BFD, a big friendly deal. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think because it, it, it's tricky because we get so small a viewport into the lower decks folks, as it were. So it, I think it's not just that Chakotay is her first officer, but he's also on the bridge. So if Seska had taken like Harry Kim's DNA, for example, oh no, I, think, I was thinking like I was thinking Ensign Vorik or something. 
Well, no, no, I, I, I understand. But like I said, like, like since I, I'm what my my point is that they, if it had been any of the main cast, she would it, it would be the same episode, minus the you know Akucha Moye. I'm I'm far from the bones of my ancestors. It would have been if it was Harry. It would have been like a mournful tune on the cl- tune on the clarinet while he like medita- meditated on the problem or something. And if it was Tom <laughs> Paris, he would have gone down to Shea Sandrine to ask Gaunt Gary what yes, he thought about the Gaunt problem. Gary, <laughs> wait a minute. Ha- haven't did did we still have Shea Sandrine at this time, or had we moved oh, yeah. to the uh, or had we moved? We have just a couple episodes and the Polynesian uh, the Polynesian. No, resort. the Tiki torches are next season. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, because yeah. I'm in season three now in my watch, so I'm I'm gotcha. kind of confuzzled as to when that got introduced. No, we still have Shea Sandrine complete with Gaunt Gary. But yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, I think if it was a lower deck person, she maybe would have gone with the "We do not negotiate with terrorists." Mm. Whereas it's someone that she's close to, eh. So speaking of when after we get Seska's message, we do get the Voyager theme. Yeah, that happened. Yes. And then we cut to Janeway and Chicote discussing whether or not this is a trap and deciding to go with it just in case it's not a trap. So Chicote is using his synthetic hallucinogen machine. He has a vision of his father. Yes, he's talking to his father to say that, uh, like, father, I have a son. And the dad's like, oh, so that's why you're so distraught. But is it healthy? Is it good and everything? He's like, well, yeah, but... I was sort of raped to like for this to happen, and I hate his mother, and I kind of hate the kid. His dad tells him a story of their tribe. I, I feel like did they still have the like the fraud as their advisor? I believe so. Point? Yes. Yeah, I, I feel like it, like the only reason that we ever get any of these sorts of things with Chicote is so that we can have an anecdote delivered as an ancient story of their tribe. And it, yes. like, especially after resolutions, like this being so close to that, like I don't mind that sort of thing every once in a while. But with with this being so close to resolutions, it's like another one. Yeah. Plus, uh, w- coming from twenty first century sensibilities, like not like a lot, but there's a little bit where his father's like, does it have two arms and two legs? As if somehow, if it didn't have two arms or two legs, that would be a reason to despair. Well, I think it's just sort of like his way of saying, you know, does it have ten fingers and ten toes? It's mm-hmm. like, like it, it, it's like a catch-all for like, is, is like, is the baby healthy? Is it, you know, is yeah. everything? No, I, I get that. It just, it sounds a little weird. But anyway, I, I agree. I think it was a, it was a metaphor. It wasn't a literal question. Like, oh, it only has nine fingers. Kill it. You know, it wasn't that. <laughs> it, yeah. it was. You, you have yeah. a son. You know, and, and but I do think. That this is one of the key points of the whole episode because I, I do think that ethically speaking, Chakotay is well within his rights. And I dare say he should have said, look, I had no part in this. This was morally, ethically incorrect in every possible way what Seska did in her delicious deviousness, which we all enjoy. Um, I want no part of it. Um, let's continue on. Warp 8 towards home. And also, Seska, yeah. known liar... has not given up any proof at all that this is actually my son known and admitted liar seska yes so yes yeah i i I agree that jacob i mean obviously it would have been 
it, Sasuke would, to, would just have to come up with a new plan to ambush Voyager. Because at the end of the day, the overall story of the episode, which is that Voyager gets lured into this trap that they knew knew was a trap, but wasn't expecting all of like the the foreplay, as it were, and got boxed into a corner and got kicked off their own ship. That's a good story to tell. Yeah, they got kicked off their own ship because apparently they don't know how their own ship works. Yeah, what, what are the secondary seriously. command processors for? I don't even know. Anyway, uh, yeah. they're hitting our what what fools these these Kazon are attacking our starboard ventral and our secondary command processors? Ha ha ha! What idiots! Uh, yeah. Y- because there's even a conversation where it's like it's so weird. Like everyone, like in the room, is going like it's so weird. They keep attacking the same spot. All of these people attacking the same spot who aren't supposed to be coordinated at all, and yet look how coordinated they are. And they're attacking a seemingly unnecessary system. And no one was like, "Hey, real quick, remind me, what does the secondary co-processor do again?" It's like, oh well, it makes sure you know that's what produces the strawberry flavor in Neapolitan ice cream and allows the self-destruct to work. Also, they never talked about locking out the computer so the Kazon couldn't have access to the ship. How the heck could the Kazon fix and fly the stinking ship? I recognize that Seska was on board for, like, I don't know, eight weeks or something. But that doesn't make her a full systems expert across the board. Much less landing the ship, which is probably one of the most complicated evolutions that a ship like that would have to perform. Flying the ship... I can accept for the most part because we sort it's sort fixing of a, it, yeah, fixing it not so much, uh, and landing it is iffy. But flying, just flying it in of itself, because it's sort of across the board that like anyone can fly any ship in Star Trek. Well, we, don't we largely don't we mostly see Starfleet personnel able to fly any ship because they went through like the academy where they learned things? Well, yeah, but they can fly Kazon ships. The Starfleet. Yeah, because Tom Paris flew that shuttle. I know, but it sounded like you were asking me a question. No, it's like, well, it's not like they would have learned about Kazon ships in the Academy. That's what I was getting at. But they learned to uh, to know how to, like, approach a new and foreign spaceship. Hmm. I do agree that it seems improbable the Kazon were able to fix Voyager, especially that quickly. Voyager always gets fixed quickly, we know this. Right, but normally it's because they have the Starfleet, the Starfleet crew doing it. Or the episode's over. Well, yeah, that too. Yes, the magical, uh, the magical space drydock that appears in each epi- at the end of each episode. Hey, we did see at the end of Deadlock. We did see people putting up new wall panels. That's true. Nice. Like the one time that happens. But anyway, you know, it's it's the little things in these episodes that that make me so happy. Like stuff like that. You know, and and I don't mean to cross the streams here and bring up another show, but. There's there's one point in the in the Rondi Moore uh, Battlestar Galactica remake where Colonel Ty says something like, "You you realize, Commander, it's going to take us six months in dry dock just to fix just to bang out the dents in the hull." You know, it's just things like that. Just these little things that make me so happy because they acknowledge reality in some way. Yes, and if Voyager was a CG model, like the like the Galactica, they could have done things like that. But <laughs> on Vo- on Voyager, because they were because they were it was a model and they were reusing the same shots, they couldn't do that. I, I get it. I get it. I, I still feel like with more pre production prep, they they knew they knew what show they were making. It's not like they stumbled into this show. They tell us in the very first episode what show they're making. They hmm. could have designed the model to have removable panels and multiple stages of damage. 
yes, we still like we would still see like the same section of hull damage time after like time and again, but it would be better than the ship is magically flying away fixed every episode. That's fair. But anyway, so talking about inside the ship, not outside the ship, we are inside the briefing room at some point, whatever. This episode's off the rails, but I'm going to try to, like, (laughs) coax the train back on from time to time. So they're in the briefing room. This is obviously a trap. How can we put more of the odds in our favor? Well, and then the doctor suggests using holographic ships to make it look like they have allies. Yes. Uh, One person mentions that, you know, if the Kazon scan these things, they're not going to see anything. And I was wondering, why doesn't Voyager, you know, unwrap some of their brand new shuttles that I'm sure they just have, like, sitting in storage waiting to replace other blown-up shuttles, uh, and have those be, like, use those on remote and have them generate the holograms. They could Mm. fly more realistically, could actually do damage by firing their phasers through the hologram, and the shuttle's computers could also probably be projecting something to, like, there at least would be an energy signature, and they could maybe, like, spoof a life science signature if they had something inside the hologram to do it. Tom Paris is flying Voyager. There's other people on the helm crew. They could each take control of one of the shuttles remotely, so we're not actually risking any of the crew members. Well, yeah, but they only have so many shuttles. Oh, wait, never mind. Exactly. (laughs) Everyone has a shuttle in their quarters under the bed. I think so, yeah. It's the only explanation. (laughs) And some torpedoes, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Although... In this episode, we do get the hold your fire. They may have torpedoes to waste, but we don't, which is an excellent line that will soon be forgotten. A a small thing which makes me so inordinately happy. <laughs> yes. No, it is nice when Voyager remembers these things. Yes, and much like the damage to the ship is promptly forgotten. So while they're uh, so while they're flying along on their on their way to find the baby at warp two, like why are they going so slowly? Yeah, the selection of warp speeds in all of Star Trek is totally irrelevant and random. It's like literally, uh, if you're playing a Star Trek role-playing game and you're the game master, I want to go to warp speed. Okay, roll D10, that's your warp speed. It is. It, it bears no resemblance to what actually happens in reality, I would think. It seems that way, yeah. They seem to basically choose a random number. Yeah, and if they, they roll a zero, they have to like sit out three turns as a lizard? <laughs> Well, no, that's what they Don't be mocking the lizards, man. Oh, zero. I love okay, the lizards. Okay. I love the lizards. I was going to say if they roll a zero, they have to go at impulse. I like mine better. If they roll a zero, they have to, you know, uh, shock them when the walls fell. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Temba, his arm, his arm's wide. A one would be impulse, but a oh, zero is actually good. a ten on a d10. Yeah, but see, I feel like since a one would be a critical failure, it should be worse than impulse. Reaction control thrusters. One should be like, yep. you have to eject the warp core. Yeah, fine, whatever. But no, but 10 should be lizard. Like, like there should be like... The, the warp core ejection system is the most fragile system on the ship. And if literally the lowest ensign in their rack in the middle of the night coughs, the ejection system is offline. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. It does seem that way. The only system more fragile are the safeties on the holodeck. There are no safeties on the holodeck. It's an imaginary thing that's told to people, but doesn't actually exist. They're holographic safeties. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You 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 you've put your finger on it, my friend. So yeah, so they're cruising along at warp two because we're not in a hurry to find the baby. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, 
It's like, ah, well, if we get there when he's a teenager, that's still fine. So uh, as they're cruising along, they come across a Kazon shuttle that's unresponsive, and there's a life sign on board, but they can't, you know, but they're, they're dying, there's poison gas, etc. They beam him into sickbay, and it's just down some rando Kazon that Chakotay remembers. Like, I, I recognize that Chakotay was captured by Seska, but that was like a while ago. But this guy was one of the ones that roughed him up, so that's why he remembered. A lot of people roughed up Chakotay in, in that episode. That's like Tierna. Yeah, and like he like why would like why would he even know his name? Chakotay makes it a habit of remembering the name of every person that roughs him up so that he can plot his revenge. You know, I'll, I'll buy that. I'll allow that, yeah. Akuchi Moya does not approve of that thought, Thad. <laughs> why do you think he has to meditate so often to get rid of those thoughts? <laughs> it's either the bad or use everybody's favorite holodeck program it's a running gag on our thing there's the holodeck program where it in meld again where uh where tuvok chokes out neelix in order to try to like work his rage out no i totally get it um yeah i i totally enjoy the fact that tuvok is not the vulcan that he thinks he is and he's not the Vulcan that he even pretends to think he is. And it has immensely improved my viewing of Voyager, especially in season three and beyond, to realize that he's not that guy. And then I put it aside and enjoy it. Yeah. So, yeah, we have the joke that that holodeck program is the most popular holodeck program on the ship. That everyone goes down there to choke out Neelix every once in a while. Neelix is not so bad. No, he's not. I, but he's he has a not. very chokeable neck. <laughs> but I, well, no, I, I, I actually enjoy Neelix. I do. Um, yeah, I think that Neelix is okay. Um, I find him and Kess cringy. Oh my! Yes. I, 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 I find no reason whatsoever why Kess and Neelix are together. It's bizarre and weird, but. Neelix is okay. He's trying his best. He's earnest and genuine, which, in my opinion, counts for a lot. Yeah, no, actually, I do like Neelix. It's a it's a joke on the show, be- mostly because it's absurd. But also, there are times when the crew is definitely showing that Neelix can be a little much sometimes. Yeah, he's like that person in your office who's strangely all- always cheery. I think somebody has the case of the Mondays this morning. I have a red swing line stapler. It's my stapler, and I, I can have that stapler. And I can listen to the radio at a reasonable volume. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, we're, See, we're on the same There's a there, pop friend. culture reference that we all got. <laughs> so we're in sickbay. Yes. The doctor is treating the Kazon. Chakotay is questioning him a little bit. We find out that Seska is dead. I don't well, believe We find him. out that he says that Seska is dead. That's true. Remember, Seska, known and admitted liar. He tells us that Seska is dead, at least. Yes. And Chakotay and the Doctor are then talking se- uh, separately for, for a bit. And Chakotay is like, I'm going to question him again later. I want you to put him through an ARA. I can't remember what the initials stand for right now. Um, the Autonomic, autonomic Response Autonomic analysis? Response Analysis. Yes. 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 The lie detector, which is funny baloney, by the way. Yes. Yeah, well, and, and the doctors are telling us that, like, like it's calibrated for a baseline for each species, which is super weird. The idea that, like, everyone in a species, like, their brain lights up the same way when they lie. 
not necessarily that... the same, but I would would believe that humans' brains light up more similarly when they lie than, say, Vulcans' brains. Well, Vulcans claim they don't lie, but that in and itself could be a lie. Right. The whole brain lights up when they say that one. <laughs> well, you know, if the, if there are aliens, then their then their view on the world would be alien, right? Mm-hmm. So if if you guys have you ever um, read the book, not the movie, but read the book Solaris? No, I've, I've also not movie. read the movie. So the movie is based on a very Hollywood interpretation. So it's not really what the book is about. What the book is about is that if we actually encountered aliens, they would be so alien that the idea that asking what does the alien want is a human question and bears no reality on the situation at hand because they're alien. And the idea of what they want is a human question. You can't ask that question of them because their whole existence is so radically different from ours that the question has no meaning. I think that might have some relevance to what we're thinking about here. I mean, it would <laughs> if aliens in Star Trek weren't portrayed as mostly just like humans. Right. True. Which is part of the, you know, it's part of the um, mythology of Star Trek that aliens are not really alien. They're just aspects of humanity. Yes. Yeah, I feel like especially uh, pre-discovery where we start getting, I mean, since most of the time it still needs to be like a human in the costume, they're still bipedal. Most of the time, I feel like if early Star Trek had thrown in something akin to like the Stargate backstory of there were these other weirder, crazier aliens that came along and stole a bunch of people off Earth like a million years ago or something and scattered them across the galaxy and like fiddle with their DNA. And that's how we now have Klingons and Cardassians and Romulans and all these people that are human-y, but not... Well, there's an episode of TNG that does... Really? Not the chase. Yeah, not what you're saying, but there is an explanation. It's that all humanoid life in the galaxy is descended from a race that planted the seeds of life on different planets throughout the galaxy. Amazingly enough, the hmm. the character that did that in TNG, the the actress, yep. is the same actress who was the female changeling in Deep Space Nine. Yes, she was. Salome Jens, same character, same same actress. Amazing. Hmm. And interestingly, that's the that's one of the few species that are not like humans. Yeah. The, the, the changelings on DS9. Except they spend a lot of time looking just like humans. With really bad foreheads. And why do they all look like Odo? Odo looks like Odo because he was trying to look like the Bajoran scientist who found him. Why do the other ones all look like Odo? You're thinking too hard about this, man. It's Star Trek. Just love it, press the button, and move on. Yeah, what anyway. kind of pips did Odo wear? He didn't wear any because he didn't have a rank. So we're back in the briefing room with a whole bunch of people wearing pips. And <laughs> the Kazon. The Kazon is telling us that we need to go this way around in order to, to find the baby. Neelix is like, oh, yeah, why don't we just go in a straight line? Kazon's like, dummy, that's where all, like, if you go in a straight line, you're going to run into the Kazon fleet, dummy. And Neelix is like, ha ha, you passed my test. <laughs> Pointing out that Neelix is awesome in that yeah. scenario. They then ask him for the Kazon Defense Net access code, which they're able to just give the Starfleet computer, and magically all these things show up on the Starfleet computer. Apparently. How were they able to? How? Why? 
This doesn't make any sense. How are they able to access the Kazon defense net? There are so many other big, friendly deals in this episode that I'm willing to give that one a pass. No. This is my pips. So, (laughs) on this episode, this is my pips. So the pips is, I I perennially bring up rank pip inconsistencies anytime they show up. That's... So, this is now Stuart's sticking point. And it's fair. It doesn't make a lot of sense. There are so many things in so many episodes of Star Trek that don't make sense. Yeah. And this is the this is the hill that you choose to to draw your sword and die on. So this week. We like to yeah, we like to nitpick. It's kind of what we do. Out of love, not because we hate Star Trek in any way, but because Wait. we can't help ourselves. We don't hate Star Trek here? Well, I don't. I don't know about you. Oh. Mm. I think I might need to change podcasts. It was fun while it lasted. Yeah. What the what? <laughs> so they're so so they're cruising along at warp two still, and they get attacked by a clanless case on radar, who just like shoots them once or twice, and it magically like it does almost no damage to their shields, but does do damage to the hull. And this has to been the a starboard st- ventral. This has been a sticky yes, point to and me. And the secondary co processor Star Trek for. Ever. I don't understand how, if you shoot at a ship and the shields are still up and the shields are not taken down, how is there any damage at all? Shouldn't the shields absorb all the damage until the, such times the shields fail? For the same reason that uh, when at the end of this episode, and I realize I'm jumping ahead, where That's fine. shouldn't have said, <laughs> hey, turn off all gravity plating, lock all airlocks in the open position and do nothing else, and destroy, and delete all command codes, and delete all operating systems. That's how I play FTL when I get boarded. So yeah, I mean, I don't understand why I, I love that. FTL! Oh my god! You know, just I like, pause the game. I so many times in FTL. Oh, yeah. I came so close to, like, to to beating through, like, the first area or whatever. I like, wasted a bunch of time, and I forgot that in every boss fight in every game in the history of ever, you have to kill them three times. And I just, like... Took too long in the second time killing him. Is this something you've talked about on the show before? No. no. I've never I've never mentioned FTL on the show before. FTL is a game show. Is it on it's a it's a computer game. Yes. It's not a game show. The, the, <laughs> yes, you are correct. With the whole point of the of the show game. is to get your ship from point A to The whole point of the game show. is to get your ship from point A to point B because you're carrying very important information. <laughs> That's that's the whole point yeah. of the, of the game, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that there are very bad people in between you and where you're trying to get, and yep. even if you make every decision absolutely correctly, you can still die horribly. Oh yeah, so it's just like real life. Yes, FTL is a game, quote unquote game, which punishes even the most correct and logical and you know, forget logical, emotional player, the logical player, the player who plays by gut instinct, you will die a thousand times before you ever complete the game successfully. And it is horrible, and I can't stop playing it. <laughs> That's FTL. Yeah, and when you get boarded, you pause the game real quick, you open up all the airlocks, except for where your people are, and you, you know, oxygen starve out the borders. Yeah. And exactly. this is this is early game, late game. You like lots of crew who can you know like punch the borders until they die. But whatever. So anyway, 
since we're already an hour in, we should probably continue with the episode. I mean, at this point, since we have been kind of like, you know, just ambling along at warp two through this episode, do we want to do we want to kick it up and actually like, you know, put on some speed like Voyager should have been doing from the get go mm. because they're a fast ship that can go fast. Bring it. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Yeah, so they so they keep cruising along. At a certain point, Janeway talks to to Suter, who gets very worked up because he really, really, really wants to help the crew. And I and like he's like, why isn't Janeway as like amped as he is for Suter to help the crew? And she's like, I'll think about it. He's like, but 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 fine. Yeah. So they keep cruising along, and they just keep getting like poked at by all these Kazons in the same spot every time. Yes, and they never like, and the there's so many things about this scenario that are irksome like the the, the steps that for that like the crew just like wasn't taking mm-hmm. like after the third attack happened where they focused on that specific part they really should have all like sat down and be like okay what like here's the list of everything this component does can we offload any of these functions to a coco processor or something yeah exactly yeah secondary command processors totally secondary and irrelevant Right, except if you want to blow up the ship, apparently. So, it, it just, like, uh, yeah, seriously, like, dumb. So, they keep cruising along, keep getting poked at. They should have set up a tertiary command process. For real. At a certain point, they decide uh, enough of this, so they turn around, because I guess they're in a region of space. I guess someone came along and made the Delta Quadrant great again and built a wall through this region of space so they can, like, literally only, like, fly in one straight line. So, other than occasionally when it works for the plot to point out that the bad guys are using two-dimensional thinking, we generally use two-dimensional thinking on Star Trek when it comes to the two flight paths. Approximately 100% of the time. Well, like, 99%, because there there is the famous scene in Star Trek II where they used three-dimensional thinking to defeat Khan, who was using two-dimensional thinking. No, that that's exactly my point, which is, oh, Khan is intelligent, but not experienced. He doesn't realize his base has three dimensions, right? Ah. So, yeah, I, I, I get you. We're, we're, we're in alignment with that. <laughs> I get it. But you're on different plans because it's three-dimensional. Oh, what's the third dimension? Your face. Oh. Anyway. This isn't Trek Geeks. That's what I was thinking. Like, instead of, like, backtracking on, like, the exact course they just came from, make a left turn. Make a straight up turn. I don't care. Or a down just, turn. Like, lay, like, pun- yeah, you know, punch it at warp nine and just get the heck out of Dodge. Like, it, like they went into this knowing there was going to be a trap. Everything leading up to this is, like, this is probably going to be a worse trap than we were expecting. Like, we knew we were, like, in for some trouble, but this is, like, there's way too much preamble happening here. Not only do they know they're, that we're coming, they have a plan, like a serious one in place. Forget it. <laughs> yeah, this is not worth like losing any like losing any people or more damage to the ship. Just, just forget it. But that doesn't happen. They turn around and just backtrack and end up like running right into a wall of like like eight K's on capital ships, basically. And if you study um, any military uh, tactics of any kind or strategic tactics, one of the things you'll learn is that choosing to engage the enemy on their tempo and at a place of their time and choosing is always a bad idea. Yes. That's level 101 tactics. Always 
engage the enemy at a place and time of your choosing, not their choosing. So Janeway fall, you know, she's a scientist, so she's not a tactician. So she falls victim to a basic level 101 military uh, pitfall. So Tuvok should have, you know, warned her of this. Or perhaps her first officer, the Maquis, who also has Starfleet training, could have said, hey, you know, as a Maquis who would often lie in ambush for bigger, stronger ships than I was, this is the sort of stuff that I would do Mm. and how I would defeat it. Yeah, but Chakotay doesn't really count. He's, like, mostly irrelevant, really. Ooh. It's cold, man. Yeah, seriously. Chakotay, and, you know, I say this as someone who hasn't seen, like, seasons four, five, six, seven of Voyager, as someone who just doesn't understand where Chakotay is going. And, you know, he, he may turn it around, but he's just not there yet. Admittedly, most of the, most of the characters go nowhere. And Chakotay especially has no character growth. Thank you for those spoilers, and um, thank you for ruining the rest of my Voyager watch. So, um, thank you, gentlemen. You're welcome. Uh, also, Harry Kim is always going to be an ensign. Ah! <laughs> yeah, I know. You were really hoping for him to get promoted to like lieutenant commander in this in, over the run of the show. I understand. So, the caves on are attacking. Uh, we use the uh, holographic thing, and it it works. It draws away the fire. Uh, except for the brief moment where the doctor was in space. They also did the deflector spoofing thing that Harry Kim came up, came up with. Hey, you know what? I couldn't find a single thing that Harry Kim did wrong on this on this one. So let's give him a promotion after all. Harry Kim didn't suggest locking out the computer. That's why he's still an ensign. Oh, good call. <sighs> Saved us. Yeah. Every episode we have to come up with a reason why Harry Kim is still an ensign. Like, usually it's, like, super obvious. He's still an ensign because punishment. Yeah. But the, that we have to feel like what he's being punished for is what I'm saying. Uh, it, yeah, so, uh, you know, the deflector thing draws off half of them. So now it's four to one odds, which is better than eight to one, but not great. The hollow thing is, yeah, it's working. Um, meanwhile, our prisoner, after he gets done praying, this is our third prayer instance. He pulls off his toenail. Pulls off his toenail. And I'm not sure, like, did he pull off the toenail or was it like a like a falsy on top of his toenail? It's gross either way. I'm just curious. Uh, there were I, two toenails. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and there are four in reality, it was a falsy because the actor didn't really pull off his toenail, but I'm not sure. I know. Not method. Toenail. Well, in, in, in my prep for this, I, I read somewhere that there was like a goop between the uh, yep. toenail and the toenail. Yeah. And so when he, when he pulled it off, there was like goop connecting the two toenails. Mm-hmm. That was not planned. And it was just slimy and unintentional yeah. which by the way awesome it works yeah like it it makes it look like he's pulling out his own toenail uh and then he extracts a surprisingly long needle from the toenail i'm not sure how that thing was able to like pack down that small it must like somehow telescope yeah yeah and injects himself and i only have to assume that this throws back to the, the problem that the polycythemia that the doctor kept talking about which is basically just like an increased red blood cell count right mm-hmm. so i guess maybe this chemical that he injects himself with interacts with red blood cells to make him go or boom it's it's a it's a byproduct of of the injection it that could also be the red blood cells could be a byproduct of the other thing yeah of like whatever like the like the, the primer of the explosion is yeah 
Yeah, it's possible. We we don't actually know. Yeah, I like you know, like we don't get any investigation this, into this at all. Obviously, uh, I kind of like the idea of like a special chemical that interacts with the red blood cells, a la. Uh, I can't remember the bad guy's name from the first Blade, but the way he blows up at the end of Blade. Spoilers. I've never the seen Blade. The guy blows up at the end of Blade. Deacon Frost. That's the bad guy's name. Never seen Blade. Thanks for ruining it for me. Yes. Deacon Frost. Oh my God. So bad. So delicious when he explodes. Yeah. They were going to make him like a really old guy. In like a like that's what the script originally called for, and they decided to put put it on its head, and it worked amazing. Blade is a wonderful movie that you should watch it. Blade Two is very good too. It's Guillermo del Toro. Blade Three it has Ryan Reynolds. That's fun, sure. But past that, it's like a music video the whole time, which is weird. And everyone's super serious all the time. So anyway, so yeah, the Kazon blows up. Uh, Suter gets some amount of forewarning because the Kazon screams first. And he kind of dives out of the way before a big hole gets blown into the wall of his quarters, and then an explosion rips through deck eight. And that causes all sorts of problems. Yeah, so this is one of those scenarios that we see all the time in Hollywood. It's definitely not the first or the last time we're going to see a scenario where the bad guy who should have, who does have a little bit of knowledge of the people they're going up against somehow magically knows exactly how everyone is going to act at every step of the way and has a, something ready for them. How could Seska, like how could Seska possibly know where her plant was going to be put? I don't know that she knew where. I think she assumed that the explosion would be big enough that no matter where he was, it would have caused system failures. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that even in Starfleet, space in space is at a bit of a premium, so they'd want to run the conduits everywhere they could. Yeah. Okay, I'll allow that one. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that one, too. The rest of it, though, like, how'd she know they would that they would come across him being poisoned on the shuttle in time for him to actually, like, deliver the message? Yeah, that one, especially, how did she know which speed they would end up going? Because if they come across him in an hour later, an hour later, he would have been dead. Yeah. So, yeah, this this plan hinged on some things. And the Kazon don't have cloaking technology, so it's not like... like if this been the Klingons, they could have easily just been like sitting there cloaked off to the side and it had like just dumped him out in space five minutes bef- before, you know? Mm-hmm. But anyway, explosion rips through the ship, system starts failing, lose power, and at the same time, we f- we hear from, from, I think, Tuvok that the Kazon are boarding through the shuttle bays. Yeah, that's interesting. Where is the second shuttle bay? I don't know, but that's where all the spare shuttles are kept. He said it. It's canon. Now it's now we know. <laughs> but like, it's in the it's centrally located on the back. Where would the second one even be? <laughs> well, it could be those uh, travel pod uh, sort of things that we saw in uh, motion picture and Star Trek Two. Mm, okay, but those are more like airlocks than bays. Yeah, like the worker bees. Yeah. I'm not saying that's the right answer. I'm just saying it's a it's a possibility. So the K's on board, and they make it to the bridge surprisingly fast. Yes. Shoot a couple of crew members that we don't care about. If Seska had stolen their DNA to make the baby, we wouldn't be in this situation. Janeway says, everybody hold your fire. Obviously, this is the, we're not going to be able to fight these people off right now. So, in an episode of TNG, Rascals, mm-hmm. the one where Picard and a few others get turned into children. Uh, mm-hmm. Baby Roe Laren, my favorite thing. Sure. She's pretty great. But my point is, in that episode, the Ferengi board the Enterprise, and they lock out the computer so that before the Ferengi get to the bridge so that they can't actually take control of the ship. 
Why? Okay. Why don't they do something similar in this episode? You're asking for like the fourth time. Yes. Not just you, but like we are asking for yes. like the fourth time. Yeah, but I hadn't like brought up the past Star Trek precedent yet. I haven't come up with an answer to that question since the last time it was brought up. Fair enough. Okay. So there. Anyway. So yeah. Now we continue. Janeway's like, all right, let's everybody stand down. I want to talk to Kulla. Conveniently, on he strolls with Seska. Surprise, dun, she's dun, not dead. Dun. Yes, all of that. And this is where we determine that Kulla is not mad that Seska had Chicote's son because Seska told him that Chicote forced himself on her. Yes. Janeway tries to, tries to make her case to Kulla, and he just backhands her yep which by the way if you haven't read the memory alpha information on that it was hilarious because apparently it turns out that even though the voyager bridge turns out to be 17 times larger than all other bridges in the history of star trek yes. they had no other location and no other ability to actually block the shot so they were all on top of each other and they're like how can i hit her so that she falls down but doesn't fall on like five other people so, yes. And I was like, dude, first world problems, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. And that is funny, especially considering how large the Voyager Bridge does appear to be. Like three yes. times larger than like all of the bridges put together in the history of a Star Trek. But I digress. <laughs> I'd say only two, but okay. So Kala has taken control of the ship and he's marching off everyone on board down to one of the cargo bays. I can't remember if they actually called out the number. Let's say Cargo Bay 3. Sure, why not? It was probably 2, yeah. though. Yeah. And after Kala had also just gotten done talking about how much he hates women who speak their mind and try to give orders, Seska starts giving orders about <laughs> all the places they should be looking to make sure they corral everybody. And she wa- wants to make sure that they determine the shuttle that... Oh, yeah, by the way, Tom Paris escapes in a shuttle. Uh, oh, yeah, that happened. <laughs> because also, by the way, even further back, we find out that they had passed, like, a Talaxian mining colony or something. I don't know, like, an hour ago. Yeah. Whatever. And Tom Paris is like, you can go back and get some Talaxian help. And it so is, that happened. the shuttle is presumed destroyed. Yes. But Sesco makes sure they wants to make sure that it's destroyed. Has that been confirmed? Right, exactly. And Kala is like, fine, I'll confirm it was destroyed. It's like, I, I get it. He doesn't like having his woman order him around or anything like that. But on the other hand, she's clearly better at this than you. Word. And if the shuttle wasn't destroyed, it's inevitably going to come back and bite you. She's trying to help you cover your own butt. Maybe be like less of a jerk about it would make sense but it's color so who cares so then we take the ship and land it on a planet straight out of the 37s yes yeah yeah the Kazon crew who is magically able to fix the ship i i don't care what kind of training seska gave them she wasn't in every department on voyager she can't possibly know how to fix everything on board the ship she can't possibly know how to run everything on board the ship she yeah. couldn't possibly have trained all these Kazons and how to do all those same things this whole thing is ridiculous. I hate it. Anyway. Now, as for the repairs, I would believe that Seska may have the knowledge for the repairs because she was in engineering. But, yes, she could ah, not have imparted call. all okay, that knowledge okay. to the Kazon. Right. What would they practice on? Exactly. The Kazon don't even have hollow technology for her to, like, gin up stuff. And it's not like Voyager is leaving a whole lot of debris behind it other than shuttles. <laughs> That's what they practice on. Oh, maybe they came across the shelter on that planet in Resolutions. 
could practice on some of the stuff in there. Actually, they do have a yes! shuttle. And they do have a shuttle. They have the one that Chicote left that he destroyed the computer core, but they still have all the tech. Hey, I wonder why in this episode they didn't opt to destroy the computer core or lock them out of the computer when they came on board, as they did in that movie that you referenced. Or d- no, that episode you referenced. Rascals. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was asking for the fifth time why they didn't lock out the computer. Yeah, yeah. Good call. Since, since they were willing to self-destruct the ship, nothing else is off the table. Yeah. So why not lock all the airlocks in the open, turn off yeah. the gravity plating, and turn off all life support? Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Like, nothing's like nothing's off the table. It's like, doctor, real quick, you know, release the Omega virus through the ventilation system. Or, at the very least, Ooh. pull out your phasers and start blowing up consoles. Yeah. Doctor, get into your supply of no-gatch hemlock and like, <laughs> feed it into the water supply. Yes. Speaking of the doctor, yeah. after the Kazon take control... Because he has the emergency medic... He has the medical holographic recall. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. So, they land the ship. The whole Starfleet crew gets kicked off the ship. They collect all their comm badges. That just was rubbing it in, really. Yeah. Kala's like, you people, you wouldn't share your technology. Enjoy having no technology. Ha ha ha. I do like... When we watched the 37s, I complained that the ship was too small when it was on the planet. They resolved that problem in this episode and made the ship actually realistically sized. They did a little better with the scale this time around, yeah. My um, point of view with this is that the thing that amazed me was that the ship didn't tip over. Because the front looks so, it's so front heavy. Yeah, no, we've talked about that. There should be a front support strut. Absolutely. And I've talked about how stupid the big, long, spindly front support strut would look. It would look stupid, but it would still also be necessary. Can they reverse a tractor beam and use it as a a repulsor to hold up the front? But then the point is, why actually land on the planet? Why not just, like, levitate five feet off the surface of the planet, right? Mm. The whole idea of putting out landing struts and actually landing on the planet is that you can turn off all the power generation on the ship. No, and turn, good call. And deactivate all that stuff. So, if well, we need force fields and we need graviton beams and we need, you know, blork the blork to, you know, maintain the ship. Well, that defeats the whole purpose of actually sticking out landing struts to land on the planet, you know? It does. The, the now, blork to blork's an essential, an essential system. It doesn't get actually shut down when you, shut, when you turn mm, off the rest of the power. I figured, like, you're way more knowledgeable about Star Trek than I am. I, I'm surprised you don't know that. But, I mean, the whole point of actually landing on the planet is to be able to turn off everything yeah. on the ship because you want to do maintenance or you want to fix stuff. And so, you know, the whole idea that, well, well we're going to turn off everything on the ship and, you know, turn off the intermix and turn off the warp core and turn off. All, but by the way, we're still going to expend like billions of gigajoules of energy to, you know, prevent the ship from turning over. What? You know, it's it, slight tangent. Speaking of the bottom of the saucer section, when Kula yes. is talking to Janeway, telling her how to see how you managed to survive, we get a Mm -hmm. really good shot of the Arrow Shuttle, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Yeah, 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 the captain's yacht, yeah. Yeah. We also get a shot of, there's like a porthole on the front of the saucer. Yes, there is. What is that? Why not? No, I'm just asking what it is. Like, Like, what's it for? Like, what is it? TOS, the front of the saucer, that was actually the photon torpedoes. At the front of the saucer. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, maybe it's a... Yeah, it could be a photon launcher. Yeah. Good call. Okay, cool. Moving on. So, they're on the planet. 
do they go through like survival training yes. in Starfleet Academy? Yes, they do. Okay, so out of all of the people that Kulla could have like abandoned on this planet, this mm-hmm. is probably like these are the people who are probably like least likely to be dead by next week. And I think we see that where they divide up into their teams and go out forging. Yeah, and strangely, it's like there's a lot of there's a lot of the command crew in Janeway's team. Yeah, like shouldn't everyone at the very least like shouldn't Chakotay be leading a team instead of like Ensign Harry Kim? Yeah, like Neely's leading a team makes sense because he could know he knows how to find the Yolo route like nobody's business. But like, yeah, like, Harry shouldn't be like maybe Harry could lead a team. He is on the bridge, but like everyone on the bridge should have a team. One of the problems I had with this episode is I could figure out what the episode title was about. And I was like, basics what? Basics of fitness? Basics of, like, moral philosophy? Basics of what? And I had to look it up on Memory Alpha. They go back to basics, right? Yeah, no, you've got it that, right? They have to go back to basics. And that the whole idea of the episode, which I feel like they didn't hit hard enough in this episode, is that our 24th century heroes have to live like campers. They have to give up all their, you know, computers. They have to give up Majelbot. They have to give up <laughs> all the things that they're used to living with, you know, and, you know, replicate me a hot chocolate, you know, tea Earl Grey hot. You know, they had to give up all that and live in a very basic way, which I thought was a very profound idea. But as I watched the episode, I just felt like that idea was not as fully developed in this version. And, you know, I don't want to go about into the, into the next episode mm-hmm. for yeah. the next season. But in in this episode, which they titled in this season, I, I felt like they didn't deliver on that promise. I can agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Certainly in this episode, yes, I would agree. Especially because we, we only see the planet at the very end. So we do have the foreshadowing shot of the CGI monster, though. Yes. Which was awesome, by the way. <laughs> We also, uh, the very last thing that we see in the episode, uh, speaking of monsters, is that Suter has survived, and he's hiding out, I guess, in the Jeffrey's tube or something, or the conduits or whatever. Uh, Which he's used to doing when he was hiding his bodies. Exactly. So I was very excited to see that Suter was still alive. Yes. Because even without knowing what's going to happen in the next episode, just given, like, here's the scenario, Suter's alive. The doctor's alive. The ship is full of Kazons. I feel like there's gonna be, like there's gonna be some shenanigans. There's gonna be some hijinks, mm-hmm. and I think Suter's gonna have to deal with his inner demons again. And Suter is not the kindler, gentler Starfleet guy. <laughs> no. He's a Maquis, right? He never took the oath. He didn't go to the academy. He's like right up in it. And so you're dealing with a firecracker. So y'all better stand by, my Kazon friends. Yeah. yeah, like he ha- like he has to like fight his inner demons every step of the way, but his inner demons aren't like I really want to tie up everyone I come across and like hold them until they can be properly processed through the Starfleet judicial system. Totes my goats. So, uh, let me ask you guys something because I did watch this episode first run when I was ten years old, so I honestly don't know. Uh, when the Kazon were talking and they said they were only they're missing two. Uh, they're missing two crew people. Yes. Did you re- did you know that? I mean, because I because I watched it when I was ten years old. I honestly don't remember what I thought then, and I've always known that it was that it was Suter. Uh, what did you guys think the the second crew person was going to be? Paris. Well, obviously Paris, but who did you think the other one was? 
before you Suter found out it was Suter. But before you found out it was Suter, who did you think it was? Suter in Paris. He he apparently thought it was Suter the entire time. Because you know, and I, and I, I gotta say, I've I had no recollection of this episode before I watched it as a uh, a GAM, a a grown beep man, <laughs> and I, it was clear that Suter saw the explosion before it, or he felt it or heard it before yeah. it was about to happen. Yeah, I'm actually I'm not sure what what went through my head. Obviously, Paris was one. I'm not sure if I. F- Fully thought that it was Suter first watch. I, I can't say for sure. I didn't jump to it. I was just like riding along with the episode. Fair enough. Because they like immediately like then jump to like the like the shuttle and everything. And so I, I just was just being carried through the episode. Fair enough. And I think we're done talking about this episode. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think we're not done talking about the season. No. Next week we will have our season two wrap up where we'll talk about our favorite episodes, our least favorite episodes, or as Stuart likes to call them, our most favorite and least favorite. We'll have our most favorite character, our least favorite character, and I think we'll have a couple other things that we'll talk about. I'm sure that pips will be mentioned. Mm. Harry Kim deaths have to be tallied as well. Absolutely. In the meantime, though, thanks for listening this week. Uh, If you enjoyed this, you should also check out our other podcast, Stargate Weekly. You can find and review both on your podcast player of choice, and you can also reach us at our email address, deltaflyerpod at gmail.com. I'm at Gamicus on Twitter. I'm at Tyrannicus on Twitter. I'm at Trek Profiles, mostly everywhere um, on the internets at trekprofiles.com or at Trek Profiles on Twitter or Facebook. And you can follow our show on Twitter at Delta Flyer Pod. And that's our show. Yeah. <laughs>